What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Maylari. So tonight, I'm going to give you guys a preview of the World Baseball Classic Final, which actually starts right about now, 7 o'clock. Mike Trout and the Team USA team will be taking on Shohei Otani in Japan. Big finals matchup tonight. The finals obviously comes down to two stars of the Los Angeles Angels, two players I'm a big fan of, Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. We'll be rooting for Team USA, but obviously always want to see Shohei Otani do great things since every time he steps on the baseball field, you're witnessing history. So I'll give you a preview of that game, talk about the lineups, and talk about how Team USA has done and how they got to this point. Then I'll give you guys an update on March Madness, give you guys where my bracket is at now, give you an update on that. Uh, my bracket really didn't work out. I had Marquette winning it all, and ultimately that didn't happen. So that's tough, but that's just the way March Madness goes. And I talked about it last week, how wide open the pool was. It's the same thing. Every single year, there's crazy upsets, but I think this year is more than any other year. It's just wide open. So, tough break for my bracket, but uh, now I can watch just the Sweet 16 and Elite 8 and everything else after that with no stress since my bracket's already done. Uh, so, I'll give you an update on that, and then I'll talk about some BC sports. BC played Northeastern baseball today at uh, Friedman Diamond in Brookline, so Northeastern was the home team there. Northeastern got the win over BC 6-2. to two. I'll give you guys a breakdown of that game. I didn't end up get to go to that game. I usually go to all the games that didn't end up uh, getting to go, unfortunately, since I had an exam. So I didn't get there, but uh, obviously I wish I was there. But Northeastern got the win 6-2. to two. I'll give you a recap of what happened in that game. And then also I'll talk about Earl Grant, who just got a two-year extension today from BC. Uh, good through the 2028-2029 season. So great extension there for Earl Grant. He deserves it. I'll give you guys my thoughts on that. Uh, and then, you know, we'll go from there. So... We'll start off and also talk some NBA as well. Celtics and Clippers probably at the end. I don't think this is going to go uh, fully an hour, maybe an hour. Probably be on the shorter side since I just had an exam. So uh, I'll probably keep it around an hour tops, uh, and, and then we'll see where we go from there. So I'll start off with the World Baseball Classic starting tonight at 7 o'clock, as I said. Shohei Otani and Mike Trout will be facing off. Shohei Otani did say last night after they beat Team Mexico that he will be available in relief in the game today. So he could potentially see... Otani versus Trout with Otani on the mound. So that would obviously be something great to watch. That would be something that everybody should you know look into watching, even if you're not a Team USA fan, a Team Japan fan. People are going to be watching all over the world. And this could actually be the most watched baseball game of all time, they're saying. So we'll see what happens. Obviously, every time Otani's on TV, I think everybody should take the advantage and watch that. And same thing with Mike Trout. You don't really see those two talents, especially on the same diamond every single day in the game of baseball, or really in any sport. I mean, those two just dominate the game in, in their respective positions. Obviously, Otani's great at hitting and pitching, and then you have Mike Trout, who's been the best player in baseball for the last 10 years or so, 10 to 12 years. Uh, so it's a very impressive run there for Mike Trout, and obviously, Shohei Otani's been great over the last four or five years since being an angel. It'll be fun to see both those guys go at it tonight. So I'll talk about Team USA. I'll give you a, review, a, a review of their lineup. Talk about how they got to where they got to. They end up beating Team Cuba in the semifinal. They beat Venezuela in the quarterfinal and then beat Team Cuba in the semifinal. They were 3-1 and one in pool play. Their pool was Pool C, which I gave a quick breakdown, not really a thorough one, uh, maybe a week or two ago. Uh, I might have just talked about it roughly. I did talk about it over the summer as well, but I, I did wish I did more of a review and uh, a preview of the tournament. But by the time this one started, I was just busy with trying to get everything done with the NFL free agency and everything else. And, and that was a tough thing, obviously, trying to battle all that. And the hockey's tournament was around the same exact time. So I really prioritized the other things, didn't really get to do a preview of the World Baseball Classic. I wanted to, but Team USA was in Pool C with Mexico, Canada, Great Britain, and Colombia. Ended up finishing at 3-1, and one. Uh, so ended up advancing to the quarterfinals, ended up beating Venezuela. Team USA was the ninth seed heading into this. Beats Venezuela, uh, or it was not the ninth seed, they, were, they scored nine runs actually in that quarterfinal game. 9-7, to seven, they beat Venezuela, and then blew out Cuba 14-2. to two. Uh, Very impressive game there from Team USA. Trey Turner's been the talk of the tournament, really. He's been great for Team USA. 14-29 OPS, 368 batting average, a 1,000 OPS with four home runs and 10 RBIs. He actually leads the entire World Baseball Classic in home runs with four. And then also is tied for RBIs with Red Sox outfielder who the Red Sox just signed. He's a rookie from Japan, left fielder Masataki Yoshida. He is tied with Trey Turner for RBIs in the tournament. Very impressive there for Masataki Yoshida. He's actually the number four hitter for Japan. Shohei Otani hits three for Japan. Then you've got uh, Yoshida batting four. And then for the Team USA lineup, give you a review of that lineup. you got Mookie Betts playing right field. Obviously a superstar for the Los Angeles Dodgers, former Red Sox great. Center fielder Mike Trout 
Batting third at first base is Paul Goldschmidt. Batting fourth is Nolan Arenado, the third baseman of the St. Louis Cardinals. Batting fifth is the designated hitter for the Philadelphia Phillies, Kyle Schwarber. Batting sixth is another Philadelphia Philly, shortstop Trey Turnup. Batting seventh is yet again another Philadelphia Philly, catcher JT Ramudo. Batting eighth is left fielder uh, Cedric Mullins. He's an outfielder for the Baltimore Orioles, plays center field for them. He'll be playing left field for the Baltimore or- uh, for the Team USA team tonight. And then batting the ninth spot, Playing second base is Tim Anderson of the Chicago White Sox. Great player, usually a shortstop for them, but he will be playing second base alongside Trey Turner, as he has for most of those tournaments. So, impressive run here for Team USA. They've only actually won one World Baseball Classic ever. That was coming in. That was 2017. Japan's won two World Baseball Classics in 2006 and 2009. The DR won in 2013, and then this is the fifth uh, reiteration of it with obviously Japan winning two, DR winning one, and then the U.S. winning one. This will be the fifth one, and Japan could be tied tonight in most wins by the U.S., and the U.S. could get a win in tonight's game. Obviously, it would be fun to watch no matter what happens, but the main thing I like with this World Baseball Classic is that they made it a bigger field. There's 20 teams now, and usually with 16 in the last four of them, so that's obviously fun, having it be four more teams are involved, and you get more teams in it that wouldn't be in it otherwise you get to see teams like Panama and Great Britain and Israel and Italy and the Netherlands all be part of it. I think that's obviously a great part of it. It's like the World's Cup. It's great to see a lot of teams and a lot of countries competing, especially in the game of baseball where baseball is not as universal as soccer. Obviously, soccer is a lot different, but it's fun to see, though, teams from across the world play the game of baseball and compete. So should be a fun game to watch. As for the U.S. team, they have Merrill Kelly starting for them in there as their pitcher. And then for Japan, they have Shota, I, mean, I apologize if I get the name wrong here, Imanaga as the starting pitcher for them. So we'll see what happens in the game tonight. I'll give you guys a quick review probably by the end of it and let you guys know what's going on in that game, give you guys an update as we go along. But that is the starting lineup for both teams. Uh, hopefully the U.S. brings home a W in that game. So now I'll move on to much madness and give you guys a breakdown of all the biggest upsets. Starting off with day one, Furman beating Virginia. I had Furman winning this game over Virginia. I think the main thing I saw with that Virginia team is a lack of offense. Obviously, they play a very good defense, but that really doesn't make up for their inability to score the ball. So I had Furman winning that game. Furman proved to be a great three-point shooting team, even though they were cold to start the game. I think they were one of seven from three to begin the game. They started to find their footing in the second half, winning that game over Virginia 68-67. to the main thing I liked us, what I saw at a Furman team besides their three-point shooting, which they were 10 to 28 from the floor from three, which is 36% from the three-point line, was their ability to play defense, even if obviously they're outsized by Virginia. They still had three blocks the team, also brought in four steals, and they also rebounded not too bad for a team that wasn't really matched up well height-wise. And just give me one second, I get my phone charger here just so my phone doesn't die. So for a smaller team... They actually rebounded pretty well. They were out-rebounded 39-31, but they did get eight offensive rebounds. A lot of those led to points. They did have four steals, I said. They matched Virginia in steals with four, and they didn't turn the ball up much, only nine turnovers. So I like the way they play the game. They do take a lot of shots. They only shot 39% from the floor as a team. They took 56 shots, made 22 of them, but they made up for that with their defense, their offensive rebounds, obviously getting a big win over Virginia. And they were obviously, I think the main thing was they were an underdog going into this game, but I think a lot of people saw Virginia as a team that was one of the weaker four seeds. So I don't think too many people were surprised. Obviously, a lot of people probably had Virginia winning that game just since you're not going to get all the upsets right. But you got to obviously expect a team like Virginia to obviously probably play a little bit better offensively considering even though they're not a great offensive team, you got to think they got to take advantage of Furman's height and maybe move the ball in the paint a little more. But they didn't do that. They didn't take advantage of it. Obviously, Virginia goes down early. As for some other upsets, probably the biggest one of the entire tournament, which there were a good amount of them so far, but... The biggest one of the entire tournament, probably Fairleigh Dickinson beating Purdue. Round one, Purdue has been struggling over the last few years. Falling in round one of the tournament, the round of 64, three straight years. So Purdue really just has not had any luck in the March Madness tournament of late. Three straight years falling early. I believe they were the second team ever as a one seed to fall to a 16 seed. Fairleigh Dickinson obviously coming into this game as a 16 seed without really much expectation. As I've said before, the teams with the lowest expectations typically come in with you know nothing to play for really except trying to win the game. They have no you know uh, 
pressure on them since all the pressure is really on that one seed, the 16 seed. There's no expectations around them, except obviously they're going to try to come in and give it all they've got. So you got to figure Purdue probably took them for granted and just thought they were going to beat them by playing their own game. Credit to Philly Dickinson. They played very high. They ended up falling anyways in the round of 32, but they did play high in that game against Purdue, got that win, beating them 63-58. to One thing that they did well, which obviously a lot of teams are going to be playing Purdue and try to play Purdue to Purdue's strengths and try to play let Purdue play their game. That's not what Philly Dickinson did. Philly Dickinson played their own game, played very strong defense. They actually forced uh, 14 turnovers or nine turnovers or 16 turnovers they forced, had 11 steals, three blocks. So very impressive game from them. Purdue only had three steals and six blocks. If you look at what Philly Dickinson did the other side between their blocks and steals, they had 14. 14. They play a very aggressive game at 19 fouls, but that obviously played to their advantage playing an aggressive game. Of their shooters, they didn't really have that great of a, a game shooting-wise. Singleton and Moore, the two better shooters, were 2 of 7 and 3 of 10 from 3. Not their best games from 3, obviously, overall. Moore finished that game with 19 points, 7 to 17 from the floor. Also added in a couple blocks and 3 rebounds on the defensive end with 2 offensive rebounds and 5 rebounds overall and a steal. As for... Purdue, Purdue really struggles, I said. I mean, they Zach Eady, their best player, 21 points, 15 rebounds, adding in six offensive boards with three blocks. He played well, 7-10, or was 7-10 from the free throw line, also adding in uh, 7-of-11 shooting from the floor. But he really didn't do much uh, in the second half, and that's really when Purdue was obviously in desperation mode considering you're down to a 16 seed. And that's the biggest upside of the tournament, but there was another big one that came before that, and that was Arizona beating Charleston, uh, beating Arizona, or Princeton, that is, excuse me. Princeton beating Arizona 59-55. to Princeton getting a big win in that one. And Princeton just, they didn't really play the game that well from three. Usually if you're a smaller team, you got to be winning the game from three-point range, and that's when most teams get a lot of their advantage is shooting the three ball, especially when you're a small team. But Princeton didn't shoot the ball very well at all. They were 4 of 25 from three, shooting 16% from the three-point line. But where they got advantage was the defensive end, where they played very good defense. They forced eight steals. They got eight steals and also had six blocks. Arizona only had one block and five steals, so they outblock and outstole the ball from Arizona, 14 to 6. Very impressive margin there. And then if you look at what they did on the glass, they out-rebounded Arizona 38-37 to and played the game very well. Obviously, considering your 15th seed, as I said, you don't really go into much expectation, but they really played their own game. And that's kind of what the same thing happened with Philly Dickinson. They played their own game and put all the pressure on Purdue, put all the pressure on Arizona. And obviously, Arizona and Purdue come out on the wrong side of both those upsets. Starting off with Furman was a great upset, but I don't think anybody saw Arizona losing early, and I don't think anybody saw Purdue going off and losing, you know, in the first game. I don't think anybody saw them falling off their bracket that early. I had them losing in the second round to, to at Memphis, and that's Purdue. I didn't think they were going to go that far, but I never saw them going off that early and losing to Philly Dickinson to start the tournament. So those are probably the three biggest upsets of the tournament overall. But I think this tournament is just so wide open, and that's why I think anybody could win. I was a big fan of TCU. I thought TCU was going to be a team that could have really made a bit deep run. They end up falling rather early. They fell to Gonzaga 84-81 on Sunday, Sunday night that is. And a lot of people were mad at Damian Baugh of TCU. And a lot of people that were betting in that game were mad at him for shooting a three-point shot when they were down by four points. Or was they were down six points with uh, just under a second to go. He shot a shot just beyond uh, half court, just within half court range. Shot a shot. Ends up making that game from six points to three points as the deficit. He ends up covering the spread, which is four and a half. Vegas and a lot of people that are betting in that game were upset. But the way I see it is he's playing the game, playing the game very hard, playing up to the last second, just like all those TCU guys. And that's what I like out of TCU. They play the game very hard and play up until the last second. And that's the way I like the Clippers to play. That's the way I like any team that I'm a fan of to play. I like teams that play up until the last second to give it their all. And that's what TCU really does. They play very hard, fight every possession. They out-rebounded that game 42-37. to They really could have used big man Eddie Lampkin, who was on the team last year, was even on the team this year, but ended up ending the, entering the transfer portal before the March Madness tournament began. Not really sure what went down there. Probably a falling out between TCU and Eddie Lampkin. But they obviously could have used him against Drew Timmy and Gonzaga on the offensive end. If you look at what they did on the glass, 
TCU was out-rebounded 42-37. They could obviously use Lampkin down there in that uh, aspect. And then also, even in blocks, even though TCU did out-block Gonzaga 6-5, you have Eddie Lampkin in there, more height, more size in that lineup. I would have liked TCU in that advantage in that game. Without TCU, probably could have beat them if they had Lampkin in that lineup. End up going with a little bit smaller of a lineup without a, a center in that game. Obviously, Lampkin's more of the traditional center. They went with three forwards, Miller, O'Bannon, and Cork as their three big men in that lineup. Mike Myers played very well in that game, 24 points, 8 of 13 from the floor, 2 of 4 from 3, adding in uh, 4 assists, and then or adding in 1 assist and 4 steals. Uh, you know, it was 1 steal, excuse me, yeah, the... Uh, the boxer I'm looking at here was wrong. He did have a block and a steal in that game. He's not afraid to go up with big guys. He's never really been afraid to do that over his three years at TCU. He is a junior. I'd imagine he does enter the NBA draft. He doesn't really have much more to prove to prove over the next year or two. He did have one defensive rebound, uh, adding in four assists, and had six of six shooting from the free throw line. Played very well. He doesn't really have much more to prove in college basketball. One of the better scorers in college basketball. One of my favorite players in all of March Madison in the NCAA overall. So, great game for Mike Miles. I'd imagine he would be an early second-round pick and probably a second-round pick still by the time the NBA draft comes in June. So, we'll monitor his draft stock. I'm excited to see where he goes. As for Damian Ball, he had a pretty good game for TCU, 15 points. 6-9 shooting from the floor, 3-4 from 3. Adding in 8 rebounds, 4 assists. Did also add in a block. And then if you look at what Emmanuel Miller did on that uh, on the defensive end, played very well, had a steal, two blocks, did add 5-12 shooting for 14 points with six rebounds. One thing that they needed, obviously, was Eddie Lampkin in the paint to cover uh, Drew Timmy. Drew Timmy was just too much for, uh, for TCU in the paint. He had 28 points, 12-21 from the floor, 1-1 one one from three, with eight rebounds, three assists, adding in four defensive rebounds and adding in a block. TC really could have used Eddie Lampkin in there. I'm not really sure what happened, as I said, but he would have been a great advantage in the paint against that those Gonzaga guys. I would have taken TCU to win that game. Even without Eddie Lampkin, I probably would have taken them to win, but with Eddie Lampkin, with certainty, I would have them winning that game. But TCU season falls short. Just another season where they fought hard, obviously, up until the end. But uh, I did ride with them through the end, just like I rode with Marquette through the end. Marquette ended up falling on Sunday. Sunday afternoon to Michigan State, 69-60. to That game was not as close as the other one. Marquette did have a couple runs in them where they got close, but the story of the game was Tyson Walker. He had a great game, transfer from Northeastern to Michigan State after a sophomore year. He's now at Michigan State for a second year. He's a senior guy there for them. Two years at Michigan State, had a great game, 23 points, 8-17 shooting from the floor, 0-3 from 3, adding in two rebounds and a steal. was great, obviously, in the clutch Time was great in the end of that third, probably the third, uh, three-fourths way through that fourth quarter. That's when he really took over the game, and that's when Marquette really needed a big play. They didn't really get much help from Tyler Kolick, who had probably five or six turnovers in that game. He had four or five turnovers at one point in a five-possession uh, stretch, and that really did kill Marquette. That's a guy that they relied on heavily during the season. He was great, was top three in assists in college basketball, but did not really have as great of a game in that game against Michigan State. Just had seven points, two of eight shooting from the floor, two of five from three, adding in four rebounds, five assists, and was one of two from the free throw line with a steal. They need more out of him. Igadaro had a good game, 10 points, four of six shooting from the floor with seven rebounds. And then Prosper is actually a really good player, probably their best player overall, 16 points, three of seven shooting from the three-point line, 5-11 shooting from the floor. Uh, but obviously they needed more help from Tyler Kolick, a guy they did rely upon a lot to create offense. But he was in foul trouble and then also was not really playing the best overall uh, on the offensive end. Didn't turn the ball over a ton. So they probably needed more from him. Michigan State gets the better of them. Now Michigan State is in the Sweet 16. They will be taking on uh, a team in Kansas State who has a great story in Keontae Johnson. Keontae Johnson's a guy that was playing at Florida a couple years ago. Had a very scary incident on the court. Ended up collapsing on the court, uh, which is obviously very scary. Ends up going down. Did not play basketball for two years. And I'm going to give you a whole breakdown of it. I'm going to find it here in my notes. Uh, let you guys know what happened. But Keontae Johnson, let me see. Looking for it here in my notes. Okay, I got it. 
So Keontae Johnson was playing in December of 2020 at the University of uh, Florida. Ends up collapsing on the court due to a hot condition. They called it athlete's hot. Was in a coma for three days in the hospital for almost two weeks. No one knew if he'd ever play the game of basketball again. The NCAA gave him an offer of $5 million insurance payout that if he chose to not play the game of basketball again, he'd be given that $5 million just as a cushion since he could potentially go pro. That's just a cushion for his injury, uh, but ultimately you have to give up your chances of playing college basketball again. He declined to take that $5 million in the hopes of playing basketball again, was cleared to play in the 2022-2023 season, returns to college basketball now for Kansas State rather than Florida as a transfer, transfers for his final year of eligibility, is the leading scorer of Kansas State on the year, is a big reason they're in the Sweet 16, uh, and obviously now they have a chance to make an even deeper run in March Madison than where they're at right now. They're in a bracket that already lost Purdue, already lost Duke, already lost Kentucky, already lost Marquette. Obviously, they beat uh, Kentucky on Sunday, but they're now facing a team in Kansas State that did beat Marquette. They're in probably one of the easiest sides of the bracket. I think Alabama probably is the easiest road besides them, but I think Kansas State ultimately could be the team that comes out of that. Uh, I think it's the west bracket or east bracket it is. So see who comes out of that bracket there. Uh, but I love Keontae Johnson's story. Had a great season for Kansas State, and I'm rooting for him to do great things. Obviously, when you see a guy go down and they don't know if he's ever going to play the game of basketball again and he gets a chance to play again, it's obviously given the ability to transfer and have another year of eligibility to play at Kansas State. It's obviously a great story. He's been one of the better players in college basketball. So rooting for Keontae Johnson to do great things for Kansas State. They will be playing on, I believe it is, Thursday against Michigan State. That's the first game of the Sweet 16 at 6.30 on TBS. The three-seed in Kansas State facing the seventh-seed in Michigan State. Then Thursday, we also have UConn versus Arkansas at 7.15. Then you have the four-seed, Tennessee versus the ninth-seed, Florida Atlantic at 9 p.m. And then you get UCLA versus Gonzaga at 2 versus 3, which probably be the best game of the Sweet 16 at 9.45 on Thursday night. On Friday, March 24th, we have Alabama versus San Diego State. I think Alabama is the easiest road to the finals, Final Four. I think they probably will end up there uh, as of now. Then you got San Diego State in the Sweet 16. Then you got Houston versus Miami, the 1 versus 5. The 6 versus 15 in Creighton versus Princeton, which is a 9 o'clock game on Friday night. Creighton probably will be favored in that game, but who knows if Princeton could continue this epic March Madness run that they've been on. And then you got Texas versus Xavier, a 2 versus 3 seed at 9.45 on Friday night. I did have Texas in my final matchup. I had them losing to Marquette in the finals. So I'm going to roll with Texas coming out of the Midwest region. I'm going to take Houston to beat Miami uh, in the Midwest. And then I have Texas over Xavier in the other Sweet 16 game of the Midwest. That leaves Houston versus Texas. I'm going to take Texas over Houston. And then in the West region of the Sweet 16 matchups, we have Arkansas versus UConn. I'm going to take UConn to win that game over Arkansas. And then we have Gonzaga versus UCLA. That's going to be a really tough game. I'm going to roll with Gonzaga in that game. I know my mom had Gonzaga winning that, uh, winning March Madness. I'm going to roll with them for my mom's sake, even though they did beat TCU. They're facing a UCLA team that did have a play go down in the last three or four minutes of that last game against Northwestern. I'm going to take Gonzaga winning that game. And Drew Timmy, obviously his last year of eligibility, he wants to go out on top. Gonzaga goes into March Madness just about every single year with expectations to win the tournament, and ultimately that really hasn't been the case. But I think this year there could this could be the chance for Drew Timmy to take it even a step further and make even deeper run in the March Madness tournament considering it's his last year. So I have it being Gonzaga over UCLA and UConn over Arkansas. I'm going to take UConn just since our local team over Gonzaga in the Elite Eight. So that leaves it being... Uh, Texas versus Houston in the Elite Eight of the Midwest region. I'm going to take Texas winning that game, going to the Final Four. And then the Elite Eight of the other side of the West bracket, I have UConn beating UCLA. For the East region, we have Florida Atlantic and Tennessee matching up in the Sweet 16. I got Tennessee winning that game. And then for the Kansas State-Michigan State game, I will take Kansas State and that one. So, so far we have Kansas State versus uh, Tennessee in the three Versus four game of the Elite Eight. I'm going to take Kansas State winning that game. I like Kansas State to make a run. As I said, I'm rooting for 
obviously that's throwing in Keontae Johnson to make an even deeper run in the Macho Madness Tournament. Then I have Alabama defeating San Diego State in the Sweet 16 in the South Bracket. And then we have Creighton versus Princeton. I don't think Princeton's uh, run will continue. Maybe it'll change by the time Thursday comes. I'll probably do predictions again if I get the time by then. But if I were to not get the predictions by then, my prediction as of now will stay Creighton over Princeton. So I have Alabama versus Creighton in the Elite Eight matchup of the South Bracket. I'm going to take Alabama winning that game, heading to the Final Four. So I have Alabama versus Kansas State in the Final Four on the left side. I'm going to take Alabama of Kansas State. And then I have Houston versus Texas in the Elite Eight game. I'm going to take Texas winning that game, as I said, in the Sweet 16, to go from the Sweet 16 to the Elite Eight, um, or the Elite Eight to the Final Four, that is. So I have Texas coming out of the Midwest bracket. And then for the West bracket, I have UConn beating Gonzaga there in the uh, Elite Eight to go to the Final Four. So my Final Four teams are Texas, UConn, Kansas State, and Alabama. I'm going to take Alabama beating Texas in the final game with Texas following just short. I'm going to take that game being 72-70. to 70. So there's my predictions updated with the tournament, obviously, being halfway through. Obviously, the, the round of 30, 64 and round of 32 are down. So we're only down to 16 teams out of 64. So already a fourth of the way or three-fourths of the way through with teams being eliminated. So, obviously, these predictions aren't as valuable as they would be. Before the tournament, there's still a lot that could happen. I think it's the most wide-open tournament there's ever been. Who knows if Princeton wins another game and continues to bust even more brackets and even more bets up until, uh, you know, that Sweet 16 game happens. People are going to be taking a lot of predictions, and who knows what happens. Obviously, considering there's already been a ton of upsets, there could be even more and Princeton even had an upset over Missouri. They beat Arizona that first game, round of 64. Then they went out to beat Missouri 78-63, to and this wasn't even that close of a game. Their first game against Arizona was a four-point game. That was pretty close right down to the wire. Arizona had a couple of chances in the last minute or two to try to close that gap. As for Missouri, they were down 15, 10-15. Just about the whole game, Princeton had a comfortable lead and had the edge. Princeton won that game by 15 points. We'll see what happens against Creighton. Obviously, another tough matchup for them, but you can't really count them out considering how great a run they've had. So as of now, I'm going to go Alabama over Texas, but we will see what happens if I am able to record another episode up until uh, the Sweet 16 game start. Maybe the predictions will change, but as of now, that's where I'm staying at. So let me guys, let me keep you guys updated about uh, the World Baseball Classic, and I'm also keeping you guys updated on the Bruins game, which the Bruins are already down one nothing now to the Ottawa Senators to start the game. The Bruins uh, gave up a goal to Dylan Gambrel uh, to start the game already in the first period. The Bruins do have a five-on-four opportunity right now, uh, so we'll see if they can get uh, maybe a penalty. There was a penalty on uh, the Senators, so maybe the Bruins can take advantage of that penalty uh, with their power play. So we'll see what happens in that game. I will keep you guys updated on that. As for the World Baseball Classic, as I said, you got Team USA versus Japan. Oh, and the Bruins even just got another penalty. That'll be five on three for another 58 seconds. So the Bruins have to take advantage of that, and we will see if they're able to do so. Mike Trout already started off the game hot with a double in the first inning. Team USA already has a guy on second base with one out. Mookie Betts uh, did not reach base in his first at-bat. So Team USA has a guy on second base with one out. We will see what happens. you got Noah Arenado at the plate right now. There is now two outs. Uh, Goldschmidt just got out. So two outs uh, with, uh, it is, let me see, just trying to keep this updated here. I'm trying to get it like live to watch, but haven't really gotten that lucky, unfortunately. Um, but as of now, Team USA does have uh, a runner on second base in Mike Trout with two outs. So I'll keep you guys updated on that uh, as we go uh, along. So now transition from talking about March Madness, I'll talk about uh, Northeastern Baseball versus BC. They played each other today. BC heading into this game at a 14-3 record, actually their best in program history. Northeastern Baseball was 12-4 heading into today. Ends up improving to 13-4 with a win over BC. A big win for Northeastern. They're playing the number 16 team in the country in BC. BC's had a great start to the season, as I said. And obviously, a lot of teams can be great early in the season. Once they get to conference play, struggle. BC's been holding their own in the ACC. They're right around 500 right now. I think they're 3-3 three three in ACC play. Beating Florida State two out of three times this past weekend, which is very impressive. BC obviously had a tough one today against Northeastern, falling to them 6-2. to two. But Northeastern's not a bad team. They're a pretty good team. 
heading into this year, they did lose a lot of pieces, especially in their starting pitching, but they did bring back a lot of talent as well. Mike Sirota had a good game for Northeastern today, reaching base four to four uh, plate appearances. He did get a hit, had a double, and also stole a couple bases, and also reached base with three uh, base on balls as well, uh, which is pretty impressive. So he was on base four to four times, three walks with a double, and also two stolen bases. Uh, Northeastern ends up getting a lot of offensive production uh, out of the beginning of their lineup. Cam Maldonado was 2-4. Danny Crosser was 2-4 with an RBI. And then Alex Lane was 2-4 with three RBIs. Alex Lane also had a home run in today's game. So, great game there for Northeastern. They were led on the mound by Jake Gigliotti. He's been great for Northeastern, 3-0 on the year. He went five innings, giving up three hits, no runs with four strikeouts and a walk. As for BC... A.J. Colarusso got the start for them. Just only went one inning, giving up two hits, one earned run with a walk and no strikeouts, facing uh, six batters with 19 pitches. Joey Ryan and Eric Schroeder came in for BC in relief, giving up five combined runs in four innings of relief between those two guys with four strikeouts and four, five hits uh, allowed between the two of them combined. Um, as for Northeastern, in relief, Patrick Harrington came in in relief, played very well uh, over the course of the season. Today was not his best game, though, uh, for Northeastern. He's been pitching well up until this past weekend. He gave up three, uh, two runs on the 18th against North Carolina A&T. But before that, he only gave up one run in four, six innings. He only gave up one run, one earned run in six innings heading into this past weekend but gave up two runs against North Carolina A&T on Saturday, and then ended up, ended up giving up two runs today with three walks and no strikeouts and two-thirds of an innings pitched. Did raise his ERA to a 5 ERA, but before last weekend, he did have a 1-5 ERA on the season. He pitched great in Northeastern's win over Duke. He went two innings in that game on the 8th of March, giving up just one hit with a strikeout and one hit batsman in that 23-pitch uh, inning uh, for him in two innings it was. So they were just about 10 pitches or 11 pitches in it. So he's been good for Northeastern so far in relief. Didn't have the best game today uh, for the Huskies, but they ended up getting a big win uh, nevertheless. As I said, Mike Sirota had a great game reaching base four to four times. Northeastern started out very hot, got a run in the first inning, got two runs in the second inning. It was up three to nothing after two, and they were up six to nothing after five innings after AJ uh, Alex Lane had a three-run home run to give Northeast a 6 to nothing lead. Nick Wang and then also uh, Kyle Wolf did get a couple runs in for the BC Eagles in the sixth inning, uh, closing the gap to 6-2, to two, but that was the closest BC got on the day. BC only had three hits. So Northeast of Baseball did pitch very well today. Only three hits for BC. And they, also, they also only had, let me see, they had eight strikeouts, uh, and then they struck out eight times BC, so it wasn't really the pitching, you know, getting strikeouts for Northeastern. It was more of just them letting Northeastern's defense make plays. And Northeastern's been a very good defensive team over the past few years. Didn't have any errors in today's game. I was to get a big win. And as I said, Alex Lamb is a player of the game for Northeastern, two or four, a three-run home run. Uh, also adding in, um, he's a pretty good defensive player too as well. He's a DH though uh, for Northeastern, but he could also uh, play as well for them. Uh, on the fields, he's pretty good uh, as well, as I said, as a, as a fielder. But he doesn't really get the opportunity. He's been more of a DH in this lineup. Danny Crossan's been great for them at third base. And that's probably what Alex Lane uh, probably would be uh, if he were to be on the field. So we'll see what happens for Northeast. They will be playing uh, tomorrow against Merrimack at home at 3 o'clock at Friedman Diamond. So we will see if they can get another win and add to their win total. As for BC, they did fall in that game today, as I said, but they will be looking to recover. I think they play tomorrow. Uh, so they lose a midweek game. They fall to 14-3. They will be playing tomorrow at home versus Sacred Hot at 4 o'clock at uh, the Harrington Athletics Village. So they'll be playing at home at uh, 4 o'clock tomorrow. So hopefully they will recover and get back on track before they play NC State at home Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. NC State coming in as a 24 team in the country. So that'll be BC's first games at home against the ACC. I think I will be calling the game, I think, Saturday at 2 o'clock versus NC State on WZBC AM Sports Radio. I'll keep you guys updated on that. I believe I signed up for that and we'll be doing that on Saturday. So I'll let you guys know how things go there. Let's get you guys another quick update on the World Baseball Classic. Let's see. Let's see if I think can upload here. But 
It is on Fox Sports 1 as well. It's on FS1. So if you want to watch at home, you can. If not, you can obviously listen to me. It is 0-0. Team USA could not get Mike Trout home. Uh, as of now, the bases are empty with Shohei Tani at the plate facing a 3-1 count with two outs. Uh, so we'll, we will see if the U.S. can get out of this. And then obviously go into the top of the second inning, hopefully with a chance to get some runs. Obviously neither team has been able to score so far. Uh, but I think the first run is a big advantage, a big momentum swing. So hopefully the U.S. can start it hot and get a run to start the game. So now I'm going to move on from talking about Northeastern baseball and BC baseball. Obviously BC baseball has been great to start the year. And one thing I want to break down before I actually transition was the teams they beat to start the year. They did beat Florida State two out of three games this past weekend. Florida State was the 21st team in the country. BC also did beat Virginia Tech in two of three games uh, two weeks ago now, or a week and a half ago, uh, who is the number 10 team in the country. BC beat them 8-5 to five and 7-3 in the last two games of that three-game series. So BC right now is 4-2 in the ACC. Very impressive start to the year for them, 14-3 overall. And if you look at what they've been doing against a lot of good teams in the country, BC beat Tennessee, who's the number two team in the country, uh, in March, early March, it was March 7th. Beat them 7-6 in the 10th inning. BC got a big win in that game. It ended up going into extra innings. BC had a chance to close the game in the ninth inning. Tennessee just kept coming back. Similar to, you know, what the Sacramento Kings with BC is going to be playing tonight. Uh, the Celtics is going to be playing tonight. Excuse me. It's, it felt like that game. The Kings versus the Clippers, which was right around the time of early March, where the Kings really just kept hitting big threes in big moments. Just like Tennessee against BC just kept hitting big home runs and making big plays and big moments to extend the game. BC ended up winning that game, though, 7-6 in the 10th inning. So we will see what happens in that game. As for an update, my mom keeps is keeping me updated on that one. Shohei Otani did reach base on a walk. So Japan has a guy on second, or first base with two outs with Masataka Yoshida at the plate. As I said, he's a Red Sox player. So we'll see what happens there, and I'll keep you guys updated along the way. So... That's an update on BC baseball and what they've been doing. They start off great on the season. They will be playing NC State to start the year, uh, start the home series or I guess home games at home in the ACC. Uh, their first home game will be uh, tomorrow. Their first game was postponed. They were supposed to play Holy Cross last Tuesday, and that game was postponed because of the snow. So they will be playing tomorrow versus Sacred Heart at four o'clock, having it be their first home game. So. That'll be obviously a good game to watch for, and I'll probably keep you guys updated next Tuesday night how Northeastern and BC Baseball are playing. Next Tuesday night probably will be a lot of baseball MLB preview uh, with, with opening day being only a few days after that. I'll give you guys my predictions on the MLB season, maybe give you guys a win-loss record prediction for every team in baseball and give you guys the whole World Series prediction like I did last year. I did preview last year in my preview. I did predict the Phillies going to the World Series obviously end up falling, which I had them falling in the World Series to the Red Sox in my predictions. They end up falling to the Houston Astros. So I was right about the Phillies falling in the World Series. So at least you got one thing right there. I did have them winning the pennant, but not winning the World Series. So now I'm going to move on from talking about college baseball and now move on to talking about college basketball. Earl Grant, BC basketball head coach, is getting a two-year extension through the 2028-2029 season. Coming into this year... Has been doing great things. Obviously, the the main thing you can do with a program that really was underperforming is try to start somewhere and build a foundation. And that's what Earl Grant did. He found a way to take a BC team that was struggling in the ACC and up their ACC record to nine wins this year. They got nine wins in the ACC this past year. They were nine and eleven in ACC play. They were thirteen and twenty last year overall. They finished this year sixteen and seventeen overall, nine and eleven in ACC play. I think they only won five games in the ACC his first year as head coach, and they improved that to nine wins this year. And obviously, had a run last year in the ACC tournament, even won a game in, this, in the ACC tournament this year. But obviously, they couldn't go uh, much further than that. But still, an impressive uh, two years for Earl Grant uh, for BC basketball. Came to BC after being at the College of Charleston for seven years. Had a lot of, a lot of success there. Was 127-89 and 89 overall for the Charleston Cougars. Even made the March Madness Tournament in 2017 as well. Averaged 25 wins uh, over a three-year span from 2016 to 2019 with Charleston. And is now getting BC back on track. Getting them really close to 500, even though they were under 500 by a game this year. 16-17 and 17 overall. They could have even won that last regular season game against Georgia Tech on senior day. And they would have been 17-16 and 16 overall in 10-10 and 10 in the ACC play. Earl Grant, one thing I really like about him is that 
he always he'll always give me the time of day. He knew me because I was a big Northeastern basketball fan. I even talked to him early this year about my passion for Northeastern basketball and Northeastern sports, and he really respected that. I told him I liked him uh, when he was a coach at Charleston because Charleston played the game the right way, shooting free throws, limiting turnovers, and hitting threes. And they obviously play to the last possession, always give you everything they've got. And that's what I liked about them. And that's, and that's what I've seen uh, from BC Basketball in the two years with Earl Grant. He's doing the same thing he did at Charleston, building from the foundation up and obviously creating a great winning culture. And that's just been great to watch. So we'll see what happens with BC Basketball. Quinton Post, Jaden Zachary, Prince Ligbe, three pieces that will be coming back for BC Basketball. Uh, they will be losing Makai Ashton Langford. He will be graduating. He's obviously a big loss. Uh, and then DeMont Langford looks like he'll be leaving uh, as well from what it seemed like. He's entering the transfer portal. Uh, so that's two losses there for the BC team. But they will be bring, bringing back, it seems like, which it could change. Obviously, guys could still enter the transfer portal after the NCAA season ends uh, for the rest of the college basketball. Once much medicine, teams could still you know, recruit guys. Obviously, that's going to go throughout the summer where you could take guys in through the transfer portal. Quinta Post, Jaden Zachary, two pieces that hopefully will be back for the BC team next year, along with guys like Mason Madsen, Prince of League Bay. Those are another two pieces for BC basketball. Who knows if a guy like Armani Mighty could get more minutes next year uh, for the BC basketball team. So I'm looking forward to BC basketball making a run next year. They did win their most ACC wins since the 2010-2011 season, and that was obviously a credit to uh, Earl Grant, how great he's been doing as head coach for BC Basketball. And one thing, as I said, I love what Earl Grant. He'll always give you the time of day. He'll always say hello. My parents have been able to meet him uh, once or two times now apiece. I even was walking uh, through campus last week, and I was on the phone with my mom and dad, and I said, uh, hey, Ma, like, there's Earl Grant. You know, I'll try to see if I can go say hi to him. And as I was talking to him, I said, hey, Earl, can my parents say hello to you? I'm on the phone with him right now. And he said, absolutely. Ends up giving them a minute or two on the phone to say hello. Uh, and he said he appreciates all the support, and he said, it starts with building a foundation, and now we're just building the bricks higher and higher. And I love that saying, and I, I think he's right. When you come into a program that was underperforming, especially a program like BC that is a Power 5 program, they obviously have higher expectations than what they were playing with in the NCAA, especially in the ACC as well. You come in with expectations of building from the ground up and starting it the right way. and Things aren't going to be pretty right away, and that's why I said gritty, not pretty. He's going to be playing his guys hard. All the guys are going to be giving it every single thing or every single uh, ounce of energy that they have, every single possession. And that's just what he's been doing. He created a, a locker room full of a winning culture of effort, of grit. And that's what you see on the court. The players are all a product of that. And our grit's been great at doing that. And I really love, as I said, how he'll always give you the time of day and always say hello. So credit to Earl Grant. No one deserves it more. And hopefully BC basketball continues to do great things in the near future, which I have great confidence in them to do so. An update on the Bruins game. The Bruins are up 2-1 to one on the Senators, getting a power play goal out of David Krejci, his 15th goal in the year, with Patrice Bergeron picking up his 29th assist and Hampus Lindholm picking up his 37th assist, tying the game 1-1 at the 11-minute mark. And then you also had uh, at the 15-52 mark, Jake DeBrusque pick up his 23rd goal in the year on a backhand uh, goal with the Bruins taking the lead 2-1 to one with assists. From Brad Moshin picking up his 42nd assist on the year and the 38th assist on the year for Hampus Lindholm. He's already got two points in tonight's game. Give me one second. I am going to get my computer charger and be right back with you guys in just one second. Excuse me. So as I was saying about uh, Earl Grant, no one deserves uh, the praise and, and obviously the new contract that he's just got. No one deserves it more than, than him. So credit to Earl Grant. Obviously, BC Basketball has been on the rise. And as I said, hopefully things continue to work in their favor and they continue to do great things. I'll always be a fan of them and Earl Grant. You can always root for guys in the industry. Even if you were a fan of Northeastern, which I was a Northeastern fan, I still am. Even when he's the coach at Charleston, I respect him. You can always root for guys on other teams. Whether a coach, they're a player, just because they're on the other team doesn't mean you can't root for them or be a fan of them. And as you guys know, I'm a fan of a million players and a million athletes. So it doesn't come as a surprise hearing that out of my mouth, considering I'm a fan of a million teams and a million, uh, a million athletes. I like the LA Angels. I like the LA Dodgers. I'm a Red Sox fan. I'm a Clippers fan. I grew up a Celtics fan. I'm a Giants fan, even though uh, I live in Boston and I'm surrounded by Patriots fans all over the place. Uh, you know, are my sports affiliations. And that's why I feel like you can always respect a guy, even if he's on the other team and being the head coach. I always respected Earl Grant, and now I'm a friend of him and, and I'm a big fan of his. Uh, so that's that's obviously a lot different than, you know, when he was at 
Charleston versus Northeastern. I respected his game, not knowing who he was as a person. Then when you, when you get to know him and obviously have conversations with him and obviously get to know who he is as a person, it's a lot different. And I think that's even more uh, valuable and something that I respect even more. So credit to Earl Grant, as I said, and uh, I'm happy to see what he's been doing uh, with that BC Eagles program. And keep you guys updated on that USA game. The USA just hit a home run. Trey Turner hit his fifth home run of the tournament, putting the USA up 1-0 early on. I believe it was the second or third inning. I apologize there for the way. I just had to get a sip of water and take a quick break. But uh, it is the second inning. Trey Turner putting them up 1-0. Obviously a big lead for them. As I said, I think the first run is the biggest run of the game. Just like in March Madness, the first few threes, you get an advantage right away, even though March Madness is a lot longer of a game uh, than just the first second. Just like uh, the game at baseball is nine innings, just because you score a run in the first inning doesn't mean you're going to win the game. Just like if you go up 8 nothing to start the game doesn't mean you're going to win. But you get a good feeling, and you put your feet in the water, and you obviously start off hot and start off with an advantage. I think it obviously plays to your advantage having that momentum. So obviously the Team USA team put, going up one nothing as a Trey Turner obviously is a great way uh, to obviously start the game. Uh, now Trey Turner starting off this game with his fifth home run and 11th RBI. There's no better way to start it. He just got a huge contract from the Philadelphia Phillies, and rightfully so. As I said, I think maybe all offseason, I, I definitely said it a couple times. I was trying to think if it was over winter break or if it was when I got back in the studio. But I was saying, no, it had to have been before winter break. It was before winter break because right before winter break is the start of free agency. I would say that Trey Turner is right around a top five to seven player in baseball. If I could have seven plays in the game of baseball, Trey Turner has to be one of them. And I think his 11-year, $300 million contract is rightfully so given to him. I think I think there's no player in baseball uh, at his ability, at the shortstop position, that is. I think guys like Shohei Tiny, Mike Trout, they're all obviously worth that 11-year, $300 million. But as for shortstops in baseball, I don't know many shortstops in baseball I'd take over Trey Turner. I think I'd take him over any shortstop in the game of baseball. So credit to the Philadelphia Phillies and Dave Dombrowski getting that contract done. Uh, and obviously there's a lot of guys that come to mind who think at the shortstop position. Xander Bogots uh, is one that comes to mind. Uh, Tim Anderson's another guy that comes to mind. Uh, Francisco Lador's another guy that comes to mind. But if I could take any shortstop in the game of baseball, it's going to be Trey Turner. And that even includes when you consider guys like Corey Seager and, and among others in the game of baseball, I am taking Trey Turner over all of those guys. So great to see him doing great things for Team USA. Uh, in, as of now, they're up one to nothing in the second inning. So just to close out the episode, the last 10 minutes or so, I'm going to give you guys an update on the NBA and give you, give you guys my thoughts of the NBA and where things stand so far. The Celtics 5-5 five and five in their last 10 games. They still are the second seed in the Eastern Conference. They are a half game up of the Philadelphia 76ers. The Sixers losing last night gave the Celtics a half-game lead over them. The Celtics are 49-23. The Sixers are 48-23. The Celtics are a half-game up in the win column. As for the Bucks, the Celtics are two and a half games behind the Bucks for the Eastern Conference one seed. I think the Celtics, as of now, are just shooting to be a two, three, or four seed. I don't think the Bucks, even if the Celtics were to beat them, I think the Bucs going to be a tough team to beat anyways. I think the Celtics are just focused on probably trying to win as many as which I think every team should be focused on right now is trying to win as many games as they can. But it seems like the Celtics right now are just waiting for the playoffs. I think they feel content being the second or third seed in the Eastern Conference. And that's what I worry about. I think a lot of teams in the NBA, including the LA Clips, a team I'm a big fan of, I think a lot of teams are victims of just waiting for the playoffs. Where you start players like Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, you know you can have all those guys hopefully healthy going into the playoffs, and that's all that matters no matter what your record is, no matter what team you're playing, no matter what seed you are, no matter who has home court advantage, no matter what the circumstances are for that other team. If you have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, just like if you have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, and that's that's how I feel as a Clippers fan, I feel comfortable just about just against, just about against any team in the NBA. So I think the Celtics are a victim of that, taking things lightly. Obviously, being 5-5 five and five right now and obviously not really finding their footing uh, going into you know this last stretch of the season. You probably want them playing their best basketball going into April since that's when you really need to turn things on and be hot. But they have a rather easy schedule towards the end of the, the season. They do play the Kings tonight, but then they play the Pacers, the Spurs, the Wizards. That's an easy, th- easier three-game stretch. Then they got the Bucks, tough game, Jazz. Then the Sixers is a tough game, then the Raptors twice, and then the Hawks. So the Celtics probably will win, if that's 10 games, and they'll probably finish the season 7-3 in those 10 games. 
finishing the regular season, it would be 56 and 26 overall. So we'll see how they finish the regular season. As I said, they will be playing the Sacramento Kings tonight. In the past, the Celtics actually struggled playing in the Western Conference against the Kings. The Kings, even when they weren't great like they've been now, the Celtics have struggled playing on the West Coast. The Kings and De'Aaron Fox have given them trouble in the past. The Kings this year are the third seed in the Western Conference. They're a game behind the Memphis Grizzlies for the second seed. The Kings 43-28 overall, 7-3 in their last 10 games played. De'Aaron Fox has been unreal for them this season. Has already been all over the place with that Kings team with the offensive and defensive end. He's averaging 25.5 points per game, also averaging 4.3 rebounds, 6.2 assists, 1.2 steals, and 0.3 blocks. He's a guy to watch out for. The Kings did lose to the uh, Celtics, I believe, by 18 points earlier in the season when they visited Boston uh, at the beginning of the season. Now they have a chance to come. Uh, the Celtics have a chance to go play. Uh, the Kings on the road, maybe the Kings will have an advantage uh, playing at home against the Celtics, but I think the Celtics can, can win that game tonight. But I think one thing you have to watch out for is the clutchness factor of De'Aaron Fox. De'Aaron Fox has been unreal this season uh, in the clutch performance factor. He's been the best player in the NBA in the clutch. I'm going to give you guys a quick breakdown of his stats overall in clutch uh, time in the NBA. So clutch performance is when the game's within five points, within five minutes to go. So whether you're up five, down five, within that stretch, within five minutes to go. De'Aaron Fox on the season has been great. Uh, this is up until February 21st. So it's just about a month ago. Let me see if I can find the stats from uh, an updated statistic from the last month because De'Aaron's been great overall uh, this entire season. So just give me one second here to get that up to date. I'll be back with you guys in just one second. Seem to be struggling here to try to get the statistics to load. I don't really know if my Wi-Fi has been down or something, but regardless, De'Aaron Fox has been one of the best players in the NBA in clutch shooting this year. Oh, here we go. It actually just works great. That's good. Uh, De'Aaron Fox on the year is the clutchest player in the NBA, according to the metric, which I want to get his points per game here, which I'm getting that. Give me one second. Uh, but overall on the on the year, De'Aaron's been great, whether it's, you know, beginning of the game, the end of the game. But in the second half, that's really, really where he's been turning things on, uh, and that's really where he's been getting a lot of his points in the third and fourth quarter in crunch time. That's when that team needs him most. That second-runner team does need someone to step up in the biggest moments, and that's what De'Aaron's been doing all season for them. So in clutch time this year for the Sacramento Kings, De'Aaron Fox is averaging 5.1 points per game, which is the among players in the NBA that's played more than two games because Kemba Walker, who played one game for the Dallas Mavericks, and then uh, Delano Banton, who's played two games for the Toronto Raptors, among those two guys there, I mean, they played one game, two games, don't really count. Among guys that actually played games, more than three games in the NBA this season, De'Aaron Fox is a clutchest player in the NBA this year, averaging 5.1 points per game in clutch time, shooting 53.9% from the floor, which is very good. Also shooting 33.3% from three, and then also adding an 85.1% shooter to the free throw line. And then also he's been good in the defensive end as well, averaging 0.3 steals in clutch time adding in a plus 0.8 rating in clutch time performance on the year. In clutch time, he's had 4.1 points per game, uh, 4.1 minutes per game, averaging 5.1 uh, points per game in that stretch, shooting, as I said, 53.9% from the floor in clutch time overall. So very impressive uh, for De'Aaron Fox. And if you look at what he's been doing over his last 10 games now in clutch time, he's been averaging 3.5 points per game, and Sacramento's in a lot of close games just about every night. But over his last eight games in the clutch, he's averaging 3.5 points per game. Also adding in 0.4 steals, 83.3% shooting from uh, the free throw line, and 38% shooting from uh, from the floor. So he hasn't been as great in clutch time as he typically is. 3.5 points per game is still good enough to be uh, just around 20th in the NBA, 21st in the NBA um, in clutch time over the last eight games. But or last ten games that is last ten games rather. But overall in the season he's been great. So if this game does does go down to the wire, I think Sacramento were to win it. But I think if the Celtics can maybe be have an eight to ten point lead with five minutes to go, I think the Celtics can win this game uh, rather easy. But I think I think if it's within five points, I think Sacramento, uh, whether they're up five or down five within that realm, I think they could take over that game just because of how fast they play, quick paced. They love to get the ball in De'Aaron's hands in transition. De'Aaron loves to kick it out to Malik Monk, Harrison Bonds. Uh, and also uh, rookie uh, three-point shooter Keegan Murray, who was a top-five pick in the NBA draft this past season. 
They love getting it his hands in his hands as well. And they also have DeMontis Sabonis, a guy they traded for from the Indiana Pacers in the paint, who's been great for them. So we'll see what the Celtics can do. Hopefully they can get back on track tonight. They are 5-5 five five in their last 10 games. And now that leads me to talking about the Los Angeles Clippers, who are also 5-5 five five in their last 10 games played. They will be playing tonight as well. As for the Clippers in the Western Conference, they currently hold the five seed. They are a half game back of the four seed. So they can, if they can win tonight, I think they will improve upon. Uh, they will beat the Sin, uh, Phoenix Suns. They will jump them to be the four seed in the Western Conference. The Clippers will be facing uh, the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder tonight and tomorrow, or Thursday night. That is. So they're playing two games at home against the Oklahoma City Thunder, and it will be a four game home stretch. And then the, then they will play the Pelicans on Saturday, and then the Bulls on Sunday. As for the Clippers, they played great last game on Sunday night, beating the Portland Trailblazers 117-102. to 102. Kawhi Leonard was great in that game, 24 points, 5 rebounds, 2 assists. Paul George was exceptional, 29 points, 9 rebounds, 4 assists. Russell Westbrook was just a point away from a triple-double, 9 points, 12 rebounds, 10 assists, and 34 minutes of action. And Eric Gordon has been great. What an acquisition by Lawrence Frank and Mike Wenger, the two guys that are the, uh, the heads of the front office for the Los Angeles Clippers. That was a great acquisition getting him from Houston. He had 20 points with two rebounds and an assist in that game. The Clippers shot very well from three, 12 of 28 from three on Sunday night, 42.9% from three-point range, and also added in 49 rebounds, out-rebounding the Portland Trailblazers, 49 to 40. And what the Clippers did great was uh, defensively they forced uh, it was 13 turnovers to the Portland Trailblazers on the turn of the ball over nine times themselves. So they won that. Ratio 13 to 9 in turnovers. They also had 11 steals, and a lot of those turned into points. Uh, so, good thing that the Clippers are finding their footing at the right time. I think they're going to be just about probably, let's say, this 10 games left to go. I think they'll probably finish the season 7 and 3 in their last 10 games, 6 and 4, 7 and 3 in their last 10 games. So, let's say if they finish 6 and 4, they will finish the season uh, 44 and 48 overall. Obviously a long way off from what I thought they were going to be. I thought they were going to have maybe 55 uh, wins. I think that was my prediction, 55 and 27. Ultimately, they fall, they fall short of that. But at the end of the day, you want Kawhi Leonard and Paul George healthy. I think it's a main priority going into the postseason is getting those two guys healthy, getting those guys on the same page, and finding a rhythm. And I think that's what the Clips are finding right now. They're finding a rhythm with this lineup. Who knows how things will change once Norman Powell comes back healthy. Eric Gordon's been getting his minutes for the most part. So they're going to have to make a decision whether it's giving Eric Gordon less minutes or maybe cutting Eric Gordon and Terrence Mann's minutes down to get Norman Powell more minutes. I think you keep Norman Powell's minutes uh, just about similar to Eric Gordon's minutes based on who's having the better game. I think Terrence Mann's minutes have to stay consistent. I think you need him on the floor for his defense abilities, the better defender of those three guys. And he gives you guys a lot. Of, he gives those guys a lot of effort and a lot of firepower off the bench. And I think when you look at guys in the NBA that give you it, they're all every single position, whether or not you want to criticize Russell Westbrook for his shooting ability, you can't doubt what Russell Westbrook brings to you on the defensive end and the offensive end every single night. Whether or not he's hitting his threes, that's give and take. But you know he's going to be driving full force down the lane, trying to get plays in transition, hustling back on defense, diving on loose balls. And that's how Terrence Mann plays the game as well. Always giving you it his all. And that's why I love Terrence Mann. That's why I love the Clippers. Overall, I'm sure you guys know from listening to this show from last year, this year, and my podcast, I'm sure you guys have heard me say it a million times why I'm a big fan of that uh, Los Angeles Clippers team. Now I'm going to keep you guys updated on the World Baseball Classic. Last night's hero for that uh, Japan team, it was, give me one second here, uh, it was a 1-1, yes, it was a solo shot by... Uh, uh, Munitaka Murakami, Murakami hit a home run, a solo shot. Excuse me if I butchered that name. One to one there for the Japan team, tying the game one to one early on in the third inning. So hopefully the U.S. team brings home a W. Uh, there'll probably be a long game in the third inning. So if you guys want to tune in to FS1, you'll get to see maybe Shohei Otani get on the mound and face Mike Trout. Who knows if we'll get to see that, uh, but I would love to see that happen. Now, just for one last update with the Bruins, they were up 2-1. to one. They were up 2-1 to one heading into the second period. It's now the first intermission across the NBA. Uh, you got the Wizards and the Magic, two games that really, uh, two teams that really aren't playing for much, and the Pistons and Hawks not really playing for much there at all, maybe for playing for play-ins. Uh, and then you have the Cavaliers facing the uh, Nets. They are down 24-20 to 20 to the Nets early on. 
But I want to give you guys an update on the Celtics and Clippers. Uh, you know, tonight, and hopefully you guys got updated on them. The Celtics, as I said, we facing the Clippers. Uh, the Celtics will be facing the Kings at 10 o'clock on the road. Uh, that game will be uh, at 10 o'clock. And then you have the Thunder facing the Los Angeles Clippers at home. The Clippers will be home tonight, facing them at 10.30 p.m. So that will conclude the episode. I will be back on next Tuesday night, Tuesday, March 28th from 7 to 8 p.m. Hopefully have a longer episode about the MLB and give you guys all my predictions tonight. Didn't really get to do as much preparation as I typically do. Had a midterm today. I also have a couple midterms uh, later in the week. Uh, I have a promise to do Thursday and also a midterm to do for Thursday as well. So I got a busy week, so I didn't really get to do as much preparation uh, about the MLB as I wanted to tonight. But I figured saving all my predictions for the MLB season is best to do next week when you know who's back from the World Baseball Classic, what teams are healthy, what teams are going into the season with expectations to be great what what teams are going into next week with the expectations obviously to not do as well uh, I think I'll probably do more of my research on all of that heading into this week uh, and then give you guys an update on all my predictions uh, from the March Madness bracket as well probably give you guys an update on that and where I stand heading into the final four uh, since the Sweet 16 Elite Eight of this weekend uh, and then which the Sweet 16 is Friday, Thursday, Friday, and then the Elite Eight is Saturday, Sunday, and then the Final Four will be April 1st, the Final Four. So the Final Four will be Monday, uh, Sunday, April 1st, with the uh, championship game being Monday, April 3rd. So I'll give you guys an update on my predictions and how things have been going uh, by next Tuesday. So after the Elite Eight ends and we see who the Final Four is, and then I'll also give you guys all my predictions for the MLB season. Hopefully have a couple guests come on and talk about the MLB and give their predictions for this upcoming season. So anyways, it does conclude this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it. And the way I end every episode is with shout outs. So just want to give a few quick shout outs as I always do. Shout out to the O'Malley family. Thank you guys always for listening in. Shout out to the Loftus family, Timmy, Matt. Thank you guys for coming on last week and talking about the March Madness bracket. Also talking about the Patriots, the NBA, the Celtics. Talking everything with you guys was a blast last week. So thank you guys for coming on. Uh, thank you guys uh, to my siblings. Thank my siblings as well for always listening and my parents. I appreciate it. Shout out to the Key family. They always listen in as well. It does mean a ton to me. And shout out to Auntie Lisa. Thank you guys always for listening in. Uh, it is much greatly appreciated. And shout out to the sports guru. Hopefully we'll have him back on here very soon. Anyways, thank you guys so much. Have a great rest of your week. I will see you guys next week, Tuesday, March 28th from 7 to 8 p.m. Probably will be a longer episode, maybe 7 to 9 p.m. But have a great rest of your day, your night, and hopefully you guys have a great rest of your week. And I will see you guys next Tuesday night. Thank you.